From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Delaney Hall, filling in for Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. I was born in a basement in 1959. The Golden Rule is my birth certificate. The bloodlines of two great nations run in my veins because I offer free enterprise opportunity to those chained to a dull, futureless job and a drab existence. I am many things. Free enterprise opportunity. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audible bits and pieces that we find all over the world. We search the far corners of the airwaves and the internet, gathering up the good stuff and spinning it all together for you each week on ReSound. I am the spirit that built the Canadian Pacific Railway and the Mackinac Bridge the St. Lawrence Waterway, and the Panama Canal. I can build dreams as big as you can conceive. I come across a lot of strange recordings working on ReSound. Tapes of soulfully out-of-tune high school a cappella choirs, for example. Or Paul Harvey, the radio broadcaster, preaching the gospel of Amway. I am Amway. But... I think I recently discovered the strangest one yet. It's a recording from the 1980s of the legendary actor and director Orson Welles. He's doing a commercial spot for frozen peas, and he's hating it. We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. You emphasize a bit in, in July. Why? That doesn't make any sense. That's just stupid. In July. I'd love to know how you emphasize in and in July. Impossible. Meaningless. It was my fault. I, should, I said in July. If you can leave every July. You didn't say it. He said it. Your friend. Every July? This is a very wearying one. It's unpleasant to read. Unrewarding. There's something really poignant about hearing a once great man reduced to arguing about frozen vegetables. I mean, back in the 1930s and 40s, Orson Welles was a boy wonder. At age 23, he became internationally famous for his War of the Worlds broadcast. And at 26, he moved to Hollywood, where he directed and starred in Citizen Kane, which has been called one of the greatest films ever. But after that meteoric rise, he hit some trouble. He had a hard time financing his ambitious film projects, and he developed a reputation for being impossible to work with. Now, what is it you want in your depths of your ignorance? A reputation that might have been deserved. What is it you want? To make a long story short, he moved around a lot, he struggled, he continued to make films, though none as successful as his first, and he did odd jobs, like commercial voiceovers, to stay afloat. Here under protest is beef burgers. We know a little place in the American Far West where Charlie Briggs chops up the finest prairie-fed beef and tastes. This is a lot of shit. you know that. So this week on ReSound, entrepreneurs in hard times. Stories about striving, inventing, succeeding, sometimes failing, and trying it all again. Orson, you did six last year, and by far and away the best, and I know the, the reason. The right reading for this is the one I'm giving you. You are such pests. That was absolutely fine, it really was. You, you, it isn't worth it. No money is worth it.
Adam Johns lives in rural Maine, and he thought he'd be rich by now, but he's not. He never really wanted to be a worm digger, but he does what he has to to make ends meet. Jesse Dukes produced this audio portrait. I'm Adam Johns, I'm an entrepreneur, worm digger, clam digger, urchin diver, fisherman, whatever I can do, and there ain't much left. We're in Woolwich, Maine, uh, old stage road headed for the water. It's like 520 right now, and the tide waits for no man, unfortunately. coast of Maine has all kinds of mud flats when the tide goes out, the mud shows up, and the worms live in the mud. It's kind of like earthworms live in the ground. I guess evidently they just use them for bait to go fishing. I'm not really a full-time worm digger. I don't want to be a full-time worm digger. I don't even want to go worming today, but it's better than going working for somebody at minimum wage. You probably couldn't get a job there anyways. Good school would be enough worms to make a day's pay and pay for expenses. At least a hundred dollar bill. Oh, no girl. <laughs> you talk to the guys who go to the worm markets now, the guys that used to dig eight, nine hundred, a thousand, and they're coming in with 250, 300, and that's a good score right now. So many people in on it all that it's devastating what's left of the resource. No, I think definitely the oceans need to uh, survive for sure because if they don't, then we're all going to be in trouble in a lot of ways. But I'd like to be like a biologist, you know, something like that. Uh, I've actually had a lot of admiration in people that go around and work that type of work. My youngest got a have a tooth pulled out today and the friggin' dentist wants 300 bucks. Boy, I called him up screaming at him yesterday. I was like, we ain't got it. I've already come down there and friggin' pull your teeth for you. You don't friggin' get my kid in there. You know, you're the one who put the cap on his face. You're the one that's gonna take it out. I always thought I was gonna be rich by now. Starting to look pretty grim. Because you see money all around you. You see people buying new boats and trucks and cars and houses, $150,000 houses and shit. Dumb type of person. I'll go look for a pirate treasure or something. I play the mega box. I play Powerball. I know there's a big mother load of gold up northern Maine that I've been up to trying to get that. I've been within a half mile of it. I probably better start digging. Ah. Anyways, you go out during low tide, you put on a pair of boots that go up around your waist and you bend over and start flipping thin layers of mud and when you see the worms, you grab them, throw them in a bucket and you take them to market and you sell them for a certain price, each worm. The 30 cents now. It's pretty nice to be outdoors to work, you know, obviously, you know, you can probably almost feel it yourself, the freedom of being out here. You know, I mean, 
If I want to sit here all day long, there ain't nobody going to fire me. Oh, best digging I've seen in a long time. Bend over all that bile goes into your throat. Ain't got it too bad right now, but boy, I've had wicked happen out here before. This here isn't gonna cut it for sure, you know. When I look at it, what am I gonna do next month? I really don't know. I'm pretty scared, really, to tell you the truth. You look at the whole area. I mean, there's not much for anything to do around here to make any type of money. I've been working on so many things for so many years trying to get into something different. Like five or six years ago, I had an idea to build a racetrack for dirt bikes, four-wheelers. I was going to do a lot there at first, and town kind of stifled us, and then the state stifled us, and nobody really had a right to it. It almost seems to me like if I had just stuck to women over the last five or six years, instead of trying to be an entrepreneur and didn't mess with that track and lose so much from that. That in itself, you know, the, what do you call it, uh, depression, you know, from it all, that was pretty hard to deal with, you know. I ended up seeing a doctor over that. I'm done. It's a beautiful day. It's nice, not too hot, not too cold. The animals, you can hear them, there's life out there. And I even scored a few worms today, so I'm happy. My kid will get his teeth fixed today. Probably buy a gallon of milk, some gas, new pair of gloves. We're off, this is the best part. That was Entrepreneur by Jesse Dukes. He produced the story while attending the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. Million Dollar Idea, the restaurant that rewards human decency with free food once a day. So my million dollar idea is to open a restaurant that gives away a free dinner every day of the week, but doesn't just give it away randomly. These meals are given to customers who are especially cheerful and kind and decent to their wait staff, but they don't know it's coming. It's a big surprise at the end of the meal when the check comes to the table. The magical part of this is that there's gonna be no formula. There's no way to predict what sort of behavior wins the free meal. Uh, it's going to be impulsive. It's going to just click. The waiter or waitress is gonna know it when it happens, like these are the people that get the free meal. I think part of the idea comes from every once in a while having a sort of extra bond with my waiter or waitress that results in them slipping something. And it always feels so good, like you've just won this tiny little lottery that's just for you. Million Dollar Idea. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival on WBEZ.
After the September 11th attacks, people everywhere felt like they wanted to do something to help out. People donated money and blood, they volunteered, they wore ribbons or put bumper stickers on their cars. But Shannon Ross Miller, a suburban housewife in Montana, did a lot more than that. She became a remarkably effective citizen spy. I never started with the intention of actually going out and trying to find terrorists. It just, one thing led to another. I'm Shannon Ross Miller. I am from Montana. I'm mother of three. My unofficial job since uh, September 11th, 2001 has basically just been as a cyber counterintelligence hunter. Basically, it's just hunting online for threats related to terrorism or anything of that nature. My name is Jack Hitt. I'm a writer. The way I found Shannon was that I started the story by trying to find out how true it was that there were these citizen spies out there in America who had taken it upon themselves to, to sort of volunteer to help in the reaction after 9-11. September 11th, I think for everybody, probably started out to be what was going to be a normal day, but it didn't turn out that way. Later that evening, I fell in an accident and broke my pelvis. After that evening forward for about six weeks, I did nothing, really could do nothing but physical therapy. And during that process, of course, there really wasn't anything else on television other than what was the aftermath of 9-11. She became sort of obsessed with trying to figure out who these people were who had flown these planes into the World Trade Towers. If you can imagine being on lots of pain medication, muscle relaxers, in addition to the pain of being hurt and then being laid up and not being able to do anything, I basically remember just crying all the time, watching everything that would come on the TV, all the stories of all the people. There were so many that it just seemed like everyone hit me harder. And I just couldn't grasp what kind of people would do something like what happened on 9-11. When you meet her, you realize she's a very focused person. So if she's going to step into something, she's just going to go do that. I engulfed as many books as I could find on Islam, the Arabic language, terrorist groups. I basically just took it all in and learned as much as I could. Once I heard that there was actually terrorist um, chatter communications on internet forums, I was just baffled. I mean, they're chat rooms just like any other chat room, uh, except instead of discussing collecting pennies or collecting, you know, uh, stamps, they're talking about killing Americans. And then after a while, she became obsessed enough that she bought Arabic for dummies, and then she took some online courses, became pretty good at it. And then what happens is, once she's on these bulletin boards, trying to figure out who these people are, it became too tempting to her not to want to sort of participate. I just one day decided, I wonder if I signed up on one of these Arab forums um, under an assumed identity, if I could interact with these individuals. When she would go online, 
she would create a character. She'll uh, go on the internet and kind of create a kind of composite picture. You know, she'll dress them up and give them uh, photographs. Um, she gives them complete biographies, you know, where they were born, the kinds of things that they did. All the terrorist actions that they may have been involved in in the past would, would actually correlate to actual terrorist events that were vague enough that these people could claim to have been there. And, you know, she gives them families and homelands and hometowns and so on. And then she'll actually go and investigate sort of those towns and find out landmark cafes or something in that area so that she can just sort of drop that into the conversation were it to come up. I tried my hand at trying to say little simple statements. For example, if there was a car bombing or whatever, there's a lot of cheerleading that goes on in any given thread within these internet forums. And so I tried to join in in that. And and as I gradually got better at it and more comfortable, of course, then I started to take my own initiative under these identities and try and determine for myself if I could find out if any of these people actually intended to do anything. Long before I met Shannon Ross Miller, I happened to have done some work and, and read about con men in America from the old days. And one of the things that a con man does when he has a mark or the sucker on the line is that he pushes the mark away. He says, you know what, I, I, I don't think you're really right for this, this idea I have. I, I, I don't think you're really serious enough. And so I'm going to go find somebody else. And then the mark comes back to the con man with a, a kind of renewed energy. Yeah, no, no, no. I want to be part of what you're doing. Yeah, I want to be taken in by you. <laughs> and in a sense, that's what Ross Miller did a lot with these characters. The Rocket Man was one of the first ones where she used that sort of pushback method. He was an individual on one of the first real radical web forums that I that I joined and in, in, participated in. And he was an individual uh, that was located in a little little village outside of Karachi, Pakistan. He was online trying to sell some shoulder-fired rockets. Now, maybe that was real, maybe it was not real. There's a lot of big talking and bravado that goes on. So you, when there was this individual who has indicated that he had access to crates that contained Stinger missiles left over from the Afghan-Soviet um, wars, Back in the early 80s, I, I, I remember laughing, yeah, right you do. Um. <laughs> but at one point, she pushed him away and said, you know, I'm not sure I trust you. I don't think you really are who you say you are. He responded by sending her a zip file with photographs of him sitting on the rockets saying, no, 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 I'm real. Here are the rockets. And the photograph was... Uh, detailed enough that you could make out the um, the serial numbers on the side. That was where I thought, this is a joke. But, it, I mean, at the same time, every time I was trying to cross-reference and rule out the information he was giving me, it kept leading to the possibility that it was likely these things did exist and it was likely that he did have access to them. And so she literally bundled up all the emails and, and photographs that she had and got in a car and drove down to the regional FBI office and sort of circled it for like... <laughs> A couple of hours, not at all certain that that's what she wanted to do. The more and more I got closer and closer, because that was the only reason I was heading to Gray Falls that day was just for that purpose, the more I talked myself out of it, just because I thought, they're not going to believe me. So she went back home, and instead she 
uh, bundled it all up in an email file and, and sent it into one of those tip lines with a complete explanation and all of her digits and, and ways of communicating to sort of say, like, this is not, you know, a prank. And pretty quickly they called her back and realized that it wasn't. As I speak here today, the FBI is still not completely connected to the Internet. When I was speaking to uh, Shannon, she told me that, that the FBI agents that she eventually came to work with would tell her that in order to get on the Internet, they would often have to go down to the nearby public library and use their public computers. So in a funny way, what, what, what Ross Miller really represents is just someone who realized where the new kind of heat was in this new world. The heat was on the internet, and the way to communicate with these people was to go to them uh, on the medium that they preferred. They didn't meet in uh, parking garages and, and send clandestine notes that way. They met on the internet, and that's where she went, and that's where she found them. I was extremely afraid of being exposed, but unfortunately, um, the United States Army uh, decided that that wasn't an important factor and decided to publicly out me in 2004. There was a case here in the United States involving a Washington State National Guardsman, Specialist Ryan Anderson. He was an individual out at Fort Lewis in Washington State whose unit was set to be deployed in, um, to Iraq in February of 2004. Specialist Anderson was a tank commander in a tank crew, and he was trying to contact al-Qaeda. Basically, when he, want, he wanted to do it was when he got over to Iraq, he wanted to join forces with al-Qaeda and have them take over the Abrams tanks that he was involved with. So he went actively out on the Internet trying through some of these, you know, Arabic message boards to contact al-Qaeda. And so luckily he ran into me. From the time Anderson was arrested, I had fought pretty vigorously against the Army to try and remain anonymous because my working agreement with the FBI was that I, I was not going to have to be put into a position where anybody would know publicly what I was doing. And um, as it turned out, the Army was not bound to honor that agreement. So they, they compelled my appearance at the court-martial. And the morning that I testified, before I'd ever took the witness stand, I woke up um, and read in the newspapers the undercover identity that I had been using in the Anderson case. So not only was my personal identity compromised, but several ongoing cases were compromised as a result of the publication of that identity. And so... That character was, you know, immediately dumped from all these boards. And in fact, one of the people she was communicating with, who was in Canada, immediately fled. He was later killed in some kind of incident in the Middle East. What she's figured out since then is every time a character finds either a board or a community and infiltrates it, then that character becomes that community. And she doesn't use them in other places. And once she gets what she wants. She typically kills him off so that later they don't necessarily uh, suspect that character being the, the, the mole. Some of my long-term identities that I've had, when it's been time to have him martyred, I've had a hard time letting him go because you, you not only work so hard to develop and create this virtual person, you do have some kind of attachment to him. And so when I switch into my militant kind of jihadi mind, I try and think like what I think these characters I create would be like. And so there is a process of, I don't know if you want to call it grieving, but I do have a hard time. It's hard to let go. 
Another one uh, that just went went to trial um, in July was United States versus Michael Reynolds. He was an individual who started out in Thailand and was hopping around the world and as it turned out was from Pennsylvania. He came on some website that Ross Miller had infiltrated. They struck up a conversation and, and right away he's incredibly brash about what he wants to do. As he gradually made his way back here to the United States, he kept referring to this plan that he had, and I was getting very annoyed because it, it seemed as though he was just, you know, like maybe a blowhole, you know, it's a big talker. You know, people talk trash all the time, and certainly even someone like Ross Miller has to be aware of the fact that, you know, especially now, there's lots of copycatism and a lot of tough talk, but this guy was abroad and actually flew back to the United States. And uh, once the details started coming out of him, I started to get really concerned because what he ended up uh, wanting to do was he wanted uh, to blow up the Alaska pipeline as well as the transnational oil pipeline out there along the eastern seaboard, as well as a couple of refineries in Texas and Wyoming. So he was actually moving forward, as it were, and he was in the United States. When he showed up in Idaho, and this was in December of 2005, he, the, we actually set up a, an undercover sting for him. He believed he was in touch with some al-Qaeda financiers who were going to set up and pay for this operation. And in the end, when he went out to meet them on a lonely highway in the Midwest, he met the FBI instead. In terms of time spent per conviction, I suspect Shannon Rossmiller has a, has a better quotient than, the, than many of our agencies do in D.C. All the terrorist groups utilize the internet. They communicate, they do fundraising, they do their propaganda, they do their recruiting. Everything is done on the internet. And until the governments, you know, recognize as a whole the value that these guys figured out years ago, you know, we're still going to be playing catch up until until things get figured out. Shannon Rossmill is the first one to tell you that that she is a little twisted in, in doing this kind of thing. I mean, think about it. When she creates these characters, she often has to go on these boards where other people are linking to beheading videos and Americans being murdered. And she has to do that, too, in order to create the character. So there is something kind of twisted about it. But I will say there's a kind of weird, healthy twistedness to it. She admitted to me that one of her early sort of grade school projects was a poster of, you know, sort of famous serial killers through history. And, you know, other people were bringing in their posters of like the solar system and, you know, how chlorophyll works. And here was Shannon showing up with her Ed Gein biography. <laughs> so she admits that she's always had this kind of weird interest in trying to probe the criminal mind. And in a funny way, the intersection of 9-11, the internet, and her own curiosity is really what brought about this strange kind of citizen spy entrepreneurialism that she's kind of pioneered. Because it allows her to use the internet to literally crawl inside the minds of these terrorists, come to know them, and then use that information ultimately against them. This is her way of dealing with that very helpless feeling that, that almost everybody had after 9-11. Most of us felt compelled to send money to different people or uh, survivors of 9-11 and so on. But her impulse to take action found this other form. 
That was Behind Enemy Lines by Jeff Siskind, Jesse Brown, and Andrew Parker. It originally aired on Search Engine, a show about the internet on CBC Radio 1, and it was inspired by writer Jack Hitt's article in Wired magazine. Million Dollar Idea, the Human Powered Gym. I work at a gym and I see people working out on these treadmills and elliptical machines that are plugged into these giant power strips in the floor. And I trip over them, I think they're kind of a pain. And I think that it could be a really good idea to have like a, a green gym that was carbon neutral and then didn't use electricity from the grid, but the power that powers the TVs and the displays that say the time and your heart rate and all that stuff was generated by the energy of the people working out on the machines. So you could like harness the human power of people working out to power all the stuff that the gym uses. I think that would be a pretty good million dollar idea. Million dollar idea. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival on WBEZ. I'm Delaney Hall, filling in for Gwen Maxi. Do you have a million-dollar idea of your own? We'd love to hear it. Send your schemes, dreams, and comments to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. The t-shirt is a staple of the American wardrobe. They're worn by pretty much everyone at one time or another, and they're cheap, easy to make, and the perfect medium for a renegade artist or an enterprising young business person to communicate a message. Producer Jacob Fenston deconstructs the humble but not to be underestimated garment in My T-Shirt Says It All. My t-shirt says, I love thrash. <laughs> I heart NY. It's pink, blue, green, orange. It just matches up with my shoes. You know, t-shirts are very egalitarian. You can come from just about any social strata, and a t-shirt is often the most appropriate thing to wear. My shirt says tequila, drink it, lick it, and suck it. The t-shirt is the benefit of living in a free society. I mean, you know, you can say what you will about the electoral process or about, you know, the fairness of our society, but in this country, anyone can wear a t-shirt that says anything. Can you just read your shirt, tell me what it says and what, what it looks like? You want me to read the shirt? If you can... Wait, if you can't hang out with the big dogs, stay under the porch. And what this shirt means to me is American pride. It's Osama bin Laden uh, blocking zombie Reagan versus um, uh, Margaret Thatcher. Okay, it's brown and it has a green tree on it. It's supposed to symbolize your growth through God because it's from a church retreat that I went on. It's just like eye-catching and it's so out of pocket. It's, it's almost offensive, you know, and that's why I like it. Uh, it's a orange t-shirt. It has a Puma symbol in the front. What do you think about the brand? I don't really know the brand at all. I just, I just like the color. It says Mommy's Girl. And describe what it looks like. It, it's kind of brown and pinkish. Uh, it's a Warner Brothers shirt. It has the Warner Brothers logo on it. Uh, it's just basically warning you, you know, from the police. Make sure you watch out for them because they're always out to get you. And, uh, why do you want to express that on a t-shirt? Because people see it 
You know, it's not like you don't have to hand them literature. They just remind them, oh yeah, there's Darfur, I forgot. That's why. Why? The t-shirt began life sometime in the early 1900s as underwear, skivvies. But then during World War II, some sweaty soldiers stripped off their outer shirts and just went around in their underwear. Some sweaty actors also tried out the new look. No actor in history has ever made such impact in a single role as Marlon Brando. Hey, Stella! And now the humble t-shirt is outerwear, and it's everywhere. But it's not just like a pair of jeans. It's like a walking message. Uh, more like a billboard type thing. It's a way to communicate with someone without talking to them. And maybe that's why t-shirts are so popular. And because they're so popular and so expressive, Maybe someone should collect them. I'm Inez Brooks-Myers. She works at the Oakland Museum. And I'm curator of costume and textiles at the Oakland Museum of California. And the museum collects T-shirts, going all the way back to the 1950s. It would make a great garage sale, but instead, the museum hangs on to these old hand-me-downs. We are a very diverse group of people. We have very diverse ideas, and I think that t-shirts kind of help get that across. Can you explain to me what you're doing as you do this? I am working with our Argus computerized collections system and I have put in the word t-shirt and now it's going to pull up all the t-shirts that we have. So here we go. Oh, this one is slightly outrageous. This was a souvenir from the King Tut exhibition that was held over in San Francisco. And uh, there are two large heads of King Tut strategically placed, one over either breast and printed across the chest. It says, don't touch my tuts. You have this in a small? Yes. Ryan Suda is selling t-shirts at some kind of fundraiser. You know what, I don't even know what this, how to pronounce this place. It's, uh... it's somewhere in West Los Angeles, and the place is packed with fashionable young Angelinos. <laughs> they're sipping Merlot or gulping Rolling Rock, and when they're not bidding on paintings or photos, they're buying t-shirts. This is a pretty light show, but I got about maybe six or seven bins uh, that get set up, and... Uh, it's kind of like one of those things that you got to do as a t-shirt guy. This is the, the grind. Go from booth to booth and show to show. Suda runs a company called Black Lava. He's Japanese-American, and the t-shirts he makes are mostly about Asian identity and stereotypes. Like this one. It's a plain black tee, and across the chest it says... Asian is not oriental. I think a lot of um, white, middle-aged, well-intentioned people still say oriental without realizing what they're doing. Some of the shirts make fun of stereotypes. One says in plain white letters, I speak English. What about, what about I suck at math? I suck at math? Well, you'd have to be, it's an Asian stereotype, obviously. Yeah, that's the, a lot of these are. I do kind of suck at math. <laughs> well, I remember, I went to high school with you, remember? Two friends are looking over the merchandise. They're both white, and they're trying to decide if they could get away with wearing any of the shirts. Racially profiled. I would oh, love to wear this as a white man. <laughs> as a white I would love to wear this as a white man, just like down the street. I mean, what would I be saying? I could walk around like South Central in this. No, but then people might think that you're being like, you're not. 
appreciating the fact that people get racially profiled. But actually, if I were walking around in a non-white neighborhood, I would be racially profiled in a sense. Because they'd be wondering, what the hell is he doing here? Mm. Now that we messed up all the t-shirts. We are messing up the t-shirts, too. <laughs> uh, right now, we're in my warehouse in Torrance, California. That's Ryan Suda again. Inside the warehouse, it's spotless, and the walls are lined with shelves and shelves and like 8,000 t-shirts. No, is it that much? I can't remember. It's a lot. Okay, maybe two or 3,000. But each one is meticulously folded and bagged and placed on the appropriate shelf. It's carefully labeled, all by an army of unpaid workers. Actually, it's Suda's mom. She comes in and folds all the shirts and ships them out, too. No, she doesn't get paid. So it's definitely a family business. Just a few years ago, Suda ran the whole operation out of his apartment, with the shirts all stacked up in his living room. Then, in 2002, he made a t-shirt that became very popular. That shirt was one of our very first kind of viral shirts where people were like, oh my god, we have to have that shirt. He tapped into some collective anger, which it turns out can be very good for business. It all started when... Back in 2002, Abercrombie & Fitch put out a series of shirts um, with an Asian theme meant to appeal to the Asian people. That's what they said. And these shirts consisted of very stereotypical images, uh, slanty dye, buck-tooth-type characters. They had this one shirt that said, The Wong's Laundry. And they had two, like, stereotypical characters. And then one of the sayings on there was, Two Wong's can make it white. The largest uproar came from that shirt in particular. A lot of people were pissed off, you know, and they're protesting in front of Abercrombie and Fitch. And someone had come up to me and said, hey, you know, are you going to make a shirt? You know, and I was like, oh, uh, okay, yeah, I guess so. So I sat down and then I was like, well, what am I going to do, you know, here? And Abercrombie and Fitch, Abercrombie and Fitch. And I was trying to find something that rhymed with that. And what we came up with was uh, artful bigotry and kitsch. So we did it in the same font as the Abercrombie shirt. And then on the back, I was like, well, you know, I think, the best thing to do is to kind of like archive this, you know, because a lot of times stuff like this will happen, but people will kind of forget about it and then move on. But at the same time, I feel like you have to kind of learn from history um, so you it doesn't hopefully doesn't come up again. Um, and it also holds people accountable for what they've done, especially if in Abercrombie's situation didn't apologize. You know, they basically said... We're not racist. We're not trying to offend anyone. You guys just need to grow a personality or a, a you know, sense of humor. And it has nothing to do with that. I mean, those images were used in a lot of propaganda back during the days when uh, they brought Chinese people in to build the railroads. There's all this history of suppression and racism that surround those images. The entire shirt said artful bigotry and kitsch, ignorance, racism, excuses, 2002. And underneath it said uh, the struggle still continues. You keep saying you got something for me. What's your most popular shirt? Right now it's the I will not love you long time shirt. If you guys don't know about the phrase, I mean... I don't know, it's, it's been in, in media so long that people probably don't even know where it came from. I would not love you long time. The shirt came from a phrase, me so horny, me love you long time, which came from a movie by Stanley Kubrick called Full Metal Jacket, and this was done like in the 80s. It was about the war in Vietnam. 
they had this scene. Hey, baby! You got girlfriend, Vietnam? Not just this minute. Well, baby, me so horny. Me so horny. Me love you long time. You pony? Yeah, we might party. How much? $15? And that's how the scene goes. When it became very popular was a little bit later in the 90s when a group called Two Live Crew took those sound bites and looped it in their song, Me So Horny, and which was a pretty popular song back then um, when I was in high school. Funny, fun, you know, it's just so funny because like back then it never dawned on me that it was Asian anything, you know, it was just part of back then their their music and we listened to it you know we listened to all their music um but like soon after that and even to this day you know i think a lot of asian women get approached with that very line hey honey will you love me long time oh this is this is kind of nice it's from the california indian basket weavers gathering that was held in 1997, and it is designed by a Maidu artist, and the motif is a, a basket weave design. Why do basket weavers need a t-shirt, though? I think it might be to raise awareness that Native people, Native, Native Californians, Indians, are still here, that they're not part of the past. It's It's just another one of... These positive statements, group identity, and you can wear it. And you can move around within um, a city or a state, and you're bringing identity and, and this positive statement with you. I think it's, it's very interesting. This, I, I am David. This is David Sanchez. We're here in Homie in a Native Graphics uh, print shop. Yeah. What time is now? 4.20, fire it up. Uh, I'm thinking like 1.7. In a tiny print shop, sandwiched between a dance club downstairs and some offices upstairs, David Sanchez is printing a rush order of t-shirts. The ceilings are low and a massive t-shirt dryer is roaring so it's hot, the fumes are strong and floor fans are straining to suck in some fresh air. The shop is in San Francisco's Mission District. It's a neighborhood that's traditionally the center of Latino culture in the Bay Area. And Sanchez, who's the master printer here at Homie. The master printer? Well, I don't have a master. I have a PA on pre-making. Well, anyway, he works at Homie. He's racing to finish this order, and he's getting distracted telling me about some of his t-shirt designs. One of his favorites has a photo of Geronimo, the Apache chief, and then under it, it says, Secretary of Defense. The other one that we did in the same way was the, oh yeah, the original fathers of our nation. We used the images of four native people from the U.S. It was Geronimo, Sitting Bull, uh, Red Cloud, and Chief Joseph. And we used the Mount Rushmore and got rid of those guys and we use the image of these four native people so because we thought we think that they're the actual original founding fathers of the u.s sanchez isn't working by himself he has two high school interns 
After all, the whole point of Homie is to reach out to kids in the neighborhood, keep them off the streets and out of gangs. Instead, they learn to make t-shirts, from using Photoshop and hijacking images off the internet to making silk screens and squeegeeing the ink onto fresh t-shirts. That means because you don't have enough, enough ink on the squeegee. So you just add more ink. I don't know, you want to use the bigger squeegee. Yeah. Yeah. The only problem with this one, it may be the, because it's wider. Mm -hmm. So you have to put more For strain sure. on, yeah. Uh, I'm Jordan Perez, and what I do here is uh, I'm an intern. Right now, I'm designing a. Uh, I'm making my own design for me. What's What's the design that you're working on? Oh, well, right now, um, there's this road sign, like all over the San Diego freeways, that I refer to as a racist road sign. It has three characters on it, and they're all running through it, like if it was like meant to be for a. Uh, immigrants crossing the border. So if you don't live in San Diego, these are big yellow freeway signs near the U.S.-Mexico border, like a deer crossing sign, but instead of leaping deer, it's a running family. And I'm, I'm basically making a shirt about that. It's just uh, a big triangle, like the original road sign color with people running through it uh, and uh, with the uh, lettering saying, we run this shit. What do you think that shirt says or what do you want to say with it when you're wearing it? I mean that basically they can't run this country without us because obviously the markets have fruits in their in their stands because of us. Always use this one first. I think it gives them confidence because they see something that they made themselves, and you know nobody nobody did that for them. You know they're proud of it. That's Mauricio Kihara. He also works in Homie's screen printing operation. He started out, just like Jordan, as an intern about 10 years ago. Before that, he was, you know... Uh, you know, banging, you know, doing real bad things, you know, like causing havoc in the community, you know what I'm saying? That's one of the things I was doing when I was young. And when he started interning at Homie, making t-shirts kind of changed his life. I was real good at it, you know. I kind of liked it. I was like, oh, man, this, this is cool. I liked it. You know, I like making shirts. I'm like, oh, this, uh, this is the way they make it, you know, because I never knew how they do it before, so... And now, you know, I just like doing it and, you know, like teaching other kids too how to do it, so. Another former intern is Rene Quinones. I got involved in Homie. Um, originally, our lives ran parallel. Um, when Homie was being created, I was becoming the thing that Homie was trying to prevent. And the thing they were trying to prevent was kids causing havoc, gangbanging, selling drugs. Now Quinones is Homie's executive director. But when I actively got involved with Homie was when I first came out of prison, about 2003, early 2003, and I was obligated to do community service um, by you know the federal government as part of my plea agreement. Um, I had a hundred hours to do, and I thought that it'd be a cakewalk if I walked into, you know, an organization that I knew people were working in and have them just sign the documents. But I've been here ever since. I'm one of I would say one of Homie's success stories. Do you think you'll want to do some kind of work like this after you finish school? For sure, because um, for me, art is really my way out of school because I'm not really good at any other subjects. Some of our young people have actually been out on, you know, on the block or on the street selling drugs. Um, and so they already have the entrepreneurial skills to be able to make money. What they are doing is they're taking those skills and those hustling skills and applying it to a t-shirt sale where they can't go to jail for selling a t-shirt. And it's not only making shirts, it's like 
making sure that you're talking to somebody because if you don't, you're not you're not really gonna sell. You buy a t-shirt for two dollars, you put something on it. After the cost of production, you're looking at maybe about five dollars. You take that same t-shirt and you sell it for ten or fifteen. They call it a double up. Some people call it a keystone, right? It's doubling your money or, or making twice the profit. Um, so for a lot of young folks, that opportunity and that alternative to the street economies is very lucrative and it's been very effective. Oh, this this is interesting because um, the T-shirt was actually made in 1979 and it is from the burrito shop and it was worn to work by someone who had immigrated from Mexico. And so it has yet a different type of story to tell of employment and becoming Americanized. So all of these shirts have some sort of story, and I think that that's what's so nifty. I describe what's on this on the shirts. Um, well, just pictures of him. Yeah. Uh, can I ask what happened to your cousin? Um, to my cousin, he was killed on um, Monday night in West Oakland. When death and pop fashion mix, the result is the Rest in Peace t-shirt. I go by Lloyd. I go by Martin. Artist name is Nautix. I'm over here at Filthy Drip, co-owner. Filthy Drip is a t-shirt shop in Berkeley where they hand paint custom t-shirts. Uh, basically back here, I do all the hand painted work and custom work. We also have the airbrush artist back here as well. My name is a Prospect. I'm a 510 airbrush. My partner Lloyd over here, Nautix, and he does all the acrylic, the brush painting. A lot of the business comes from rappers who wear t-shirts with their names as a sort of self-promotion. But most of the customers come in with a photo of someone who's passed away, a face they want on a t-shirt with the words, rest in peace. This image right now is a collage of um, someone that just recently passed away. It's all memorial pictures that he has taken with his family and friends. Right now I'm putting on the back of the, the shirt that they're having made. My name is Shauna Green Jasper. I am a funeral director at McNary Morgan Green and Jackson Mortuary in, uh, in Oakland. The demographic that wear the Rest in Peace shirts are um, individuals that are under the age of 30, usually that have died by murder or some type of violent crime. Most of the, most of the people that we do paint, we do these shirts for, the deceased are usually between 15 and 18 that we do. We've done shirts of kids, 15, 16 years old, like the kid that got killed early in the year at the Metreon. You know, he was 15 years old, and the kid that shot him was 15. It's just kind of, kind of crazy. A memorial that they're going to keep. Bulletins or programs from the funeral service get lost. They're thrown away accidentally. They get put in the back of a drawer, and you forget about it. But a T-shirt, usually you put it in a drawer, and you, you remember that you have that, and you, you'll want to wear it again. How much does this one cost? Something back in front like this is going to cost about each. I would say we see rest in peace shirts at least two to three times a month. 80% of our business is based on death, and that includes like the past way musicians that we paint. Death is a big factor of our business. It's kind of kind of sad to say, but yes, we do pretty much see them on every young person who was killed by a violent crime. And is is that a lot of people here? 
In Oakland, there are a lot of young people that are dying by violent crime. Unfortunately, we don't get all of those cases, uh, but the ones that we do get, they do end up making the t-shirts for memorials. Finished with all the accents, all, all you have now is just sitting time and drying time and wait for the customer. Burns Jr. was born September 10th, 1983 in Oakland, California, to the union of Kim Clark and Creon Burns Sr. He accepted Christ at a young age. What's your shirt say? Huh? What's your shirt say? It says, rest in peace, Creon. It says, rest in peace, Creon. Rest in peace, Creon, man. That's really about he it. He says, rest in peace. Rest in peace, Creon, baby. We love you. He played football and wrestled while his hobbies were drawn. Okay, yeah, I have a shirt on. It says, rest in peace, Creon. It's for my little nephew. He was like family and a nice friend, and he loved all of us. This the least we could do is at least have him on on our shirt, so we could he, he'd be around us every day. You know what I mean? He's gonna be around us no matter what. Looking down. I don't even really want to talk. Like, like I knew him since I was born. At the time of his death, Brian was residing in Oakland with his mother, brother, and sister. He had been working in the construction business for five years. In his spare time, Brian. It was weird that um. I, Got a phone call from my friend Bobby right here, and he told me about it, and I was like devastated. I didn't even know what was going on. I was just like, what? I thought he was joking with me, you know? I was like, not Creon, you know? Unfortunately, yeah, it was true. I haven't seen him in months. It's, it's sad to see him this way, you know? Creon, that's... There's <laughs> so many stories about it. I got so many memories with that, with that guy, but I'm, I'm definitely going to miss him, but yeah. Are you going to have a shirt made? I'm going to buy a shirt. I definitely need one. Uh, I don't have any porches or anything. Father Kim Clark, Father Creon Burns Sr., his three children, Sade, Patience, and Achilles, two sisters, Latavia. Do you think you'll just wear it today, or are you going to wear it? When this one gets done, I'll make another one. I'm going to make a jacket with it on it, you know what I'm saying? Just, you know, it's something so everybody can see, you know? I went up there, the casket was open. I didn't, I ain't trying to remember them like that. I'm trying to remember them like this, you know what I'm saying? The picture, you pick the picture. You pick what you wanted to say, you know what I'm saying? With something like that, you ain't got to say nothing. Everybody knows where you at with it, you know? You ain't got to say nothing. You sure do the talking for you, that's it. Like me personally, I really don't feel like, you know what I'm saying? I'm probably, like he said, I'm probably going to get a t-shirt, but I'm probably going to hang it up. Because, you know what I'm saying, like with the t-shirts, that should be kind of glorifying, you know what I'm saying, the death and all that type of shit. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's something like a like a bragging thing, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, man, I got partners that got killed, you know what I'm saying? Some people wearing shirts with people they don't even know, you know? I don't do that, you know what I'm saying? I'm not gonna walk around with a RIP, this is my partner, this is my close, close friend, you know what I'm saying? I'm, so, you know what I'm saying? I wouldn't even do him like that, you feel me? Like, it's in my heart, you feel me? Like, I feel that shit, you know what I mean? I'm hurting, so I don't even, I might get a tat or something, you feel me? To remind me, RIP, Creon, you know what I'm saying? But I'm not gonna do this shirt, you know what I'm saying? Seems like we gotta make these shirts too often, you know what I'm saying? There's way too many of them, you look around, we got at least a good 30 of them here. Someone making money, it ain't they fault, you know, at the same time. Every corner you hit, you see a shirt with a face on it, you know what I'm saying? It ain't a good look. But that's that's where we live, you know, that's the Bay Area. That's where we stand at right now. And I just like to add, he's not, don't speak of him in past tense. He's still here. And as long as we remember him in every memory, he is with us always, today and tomorrow. God bless you all. In China, following the Tiananmen Square massacre, t-shirts were banned. Wearing one deemed decadent in spirit could get you arrested. In England, a t-shirt reading bollocks to Blair earned one woman a trip to the local police station. And in Michigan, one with a photo of George Bush and the words international terrorist landed a high school student in the principal's office, and eventually a federal court. 
all over the world, t-shirts are talking and sometimes getting the people wearing them in hot water. But t-shirts say what's on your mind, whether it's terrorism or your favorite brand of tequila or a church retreat you went on. Putting on a t-shirt says something about who you are. Do you have a favorite t-shirt that you wear? I have a t-shirt that I can't bear to throw away, and for the life of me, I have no idea why, because it's really very corny. It's a t-shirt from around 75 or 76, and it has Raggedy Ann on it in a heart, so it's it's really schmaltzy. <laughs> but I just cannot part with it. It's just one of those funny things. My T-Shirt Says It All by Jacob Fenston. To read an interview with Jacob, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. And that is it. We have gone through 172 T-Shirts. Idea. I can't tell you about my million dollar idea because this is for a radio show and then everybody's going to hear it and they're going to steal it. I can't just let my ideas go out willy nilly. I can tell you like some of my smaller ideas, like my my thousand dollar idea. <laughs> million dollar idea not gonna get it. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Delaney Hall, filling in for Gwen Maxi. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. You can also find audio resources like links to ubu.com, the amazing site where we discovered the Orson Welles tape that you heard at the beginning of the show. Norway. Fish fingers in Norway. Norway. We know a certain fjord in Norway, near where the cod gather in great shoals. There, Janste Stangelens. Fraction more on the wall, that shoals thing, because you roll it around very nicely. Yeah, roll it around and I have no more time. You don't know what I'm up against. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, the Boeing Company, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>